Leonard here, and I know we all have a couple daily lists. You know what they are. The have-to-do list and the choose-to-do list. To make my daily choose-to-do list, you have to be special. And Papa's Roast Coffee is truly that special. That's why Papa's Roast Coffee is a regular choice of mine and so many others. Papa's Roast owners, Dean and Debbie Chris, take special care to provide a perfect roast on every bean. Sourced from a single origin, the coffee beans are roasted to perfection in small batches, and then, if that were not enough, the beans are packaged and shipped in an eco-friendly bag. Papa's Roast Coffee, from start to finish, has earned a place on my everyday choose-to-do list, and I think they will on yours too. Get your Papa's Roast Coffee at papasroast.com today. Now, to our conversation. Hey, welcome to Say Yes and Become. I'm your host, Leonard Lee, and I am really, really happy to uh, say that my friend Derek Vreeland is back today. Uh, he has got a new book out that uh, I can't wait to read. I just pre-ordered it. Uh, I've read descriptions. We just chatted for a couple seconds about it earlier. Um, on his website, there is a, a description of the book. And Derek, welcome to Say Yes and Become. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me back, Leonard. I appreciate it. And did you want to give a shout out to your Chiefs, Super Bowl champions, and anything like that? Well, this is an audio podcast, so the people can't see. I'm in full Chiefs gear celebrating the three-time world champion Kansas City Chiefs. You know, I, I wear a Chiefs shirt or hat about every other day. Because when your team wins the Super Bowl, you know, you just enjoy it. Because I, I like sports, but I don't like sports when it makes me feel good. <laughs> so... <laughs> I ride those sports highs really high for a long time. Oh, My Chiefs yeah. lose, even losing a Super Bowl, I get over it in about 30 minutes, but uh, I'm riding high right now. Well, you got to love it. I um, I got to say, uh, when they brought in Andy Reid, I thought, oh, I don't know. But boy, he has just shut my mouth and proved me wrong and assembled great coaching as well as great players. You got to hand it to them. Yeah, it's it's been fun. I've been a Chiefs fan for decades, and we are in the golden era right now. So I'm I'm living it up. And when they traded that wide receiver to Miami before the first of the year, I just thought to myself, "There's no way they're going to overcome that." Right. But uh, they filled in those blanks with a, a group of people. Some people stepped up. I was pretty impressed. Yeah, it's it was a rebuilding year for the Chiefs. You know, we traded Tyreek Hill for a lot of draft picks, and it looked like just a bunch of, you know, rookies and sort of cast-offs from other teams in the wide receiver room. Uh, but Patrick Mahomes is a is a generational talent. He's a mm. transcendent. So I grew up in the 80s watching Michael Jordan, 80s and, and in the 90s. And um, Michael Jordan was a transcendent athlete, a transcendent player, made the people around him better. And Mahomes is like that. And then you got Andy Reid, um, yep. who's a mastermind. And not only that, but I'm going to shout out Coach Reid. Not only is he a mastermind with offense, he is a good dude. Yep. All of his players love him. Uh, Frank Clark, our defensive end that we picked up from Seattle, he, uh, he knew he was in his last year with the Chiefs. And after the AFC championship game, uh, when the Chiefs finally beat the Bengals, uh, Frank Clark, this big old tough uh, defensive end, uh, hugs Andy Reid and kisses him on the cheek. Mm. Um, Andy Reid is a is a really good guy. And so shout out Coach Reid. 
There you go. I like it. I like it. So, well, we could probably talk football all the time. Uh, and I'm a big sports guy too. Uh, but I root for the Raiders. So I haven't had much to cheer about, uh, in for football, a long time, bro. I'm a long warrior time. fan and Hey, my A's are on schedule to win 12 games this year. <laughs> it's pretty pathetic. Um, but, uh, we're actually here to talk about, uh, Jesus, your book and life and ministry. So I'm really glad you're here. Let's just start off in the deep end and, uh, see if we can't, uh, uh, tread water for a bit here. Um, my first question for you, Derek is, um, uh, I sense from you, I've always sensed from you that you have a deep love and passion for the church and the people of God. Uh, they mean the world to you, uh, cause they mean the world to Jesus, um, can you just give me some of your insights about where you see the church and how you see the church moving forward or functioning today in 2023? Yeah, I love the church. I mean, I'm I, I'm a pastor, so people would assume uh, that goes together. But even if I wasn't vocationally in ministry, um, I would still be connected to the church. I love the church. The church came into my life when I was a very awkward teenager and uh, loved me and, and loved mm. me well. And uh, I'm sure there was all sorts of things behind the scenes I didn't know. Um, and I know so many people have been hurt by the church. So I try to be sensitive to that. I, I mean, I know a lot of people. I know so many stories of people who have experienced real church trauma, uh, toxic leadership, and I'm grieved but it's just not my story. I mean, I was a 15 year old. I was baptized when I was 12, but then got active in the church when I was 15. And, uh, I just remember the, the hugs from the old ladies. Mm -hmm. And I remember pimento cheese sandwiches I at the, it. uh, the potluck. And it was a nurturing place for me and my wife. We met, um, in the youth group when we were teenagers and both of us just embraced and loved by the church. And, and I got my scars. I mean, uh, the church, I've been hurt by the church and uh, so I got scars yeah. and I got some woundedness in my past, but the church is the bride of Christ. Mm -hmm. You know, Paul uh, encourages husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church yeah. and it's Jesus bride and Jesus bride has been so good to me. So I love the church. I believe in the church, but if we're honest, this is really difficult times for the church right now. Yeah. I mean, post uh, COVID pandemic, um, you know, all the reports are that church attendance is down. I know we experienced that. I think we're just about rebounded. Mm. We're almost there to our pre COVID numbers just in terms of attendance. But I think it was um, Glenn Packiam in his book, um, resilient pastor had some Barner research statistics and I think church attendance dropped from like 42% to 37%. Mm. Have to check those exact specifics. So attendance is down. Uh, trust in the church is at an all-time low. I mean, culturally, we're in a place we don't trust institutions anymore. I mean, since the 1960s, um, that trend has been downward. Right. Um, and I think the internet and the access to information has and the access to disinformation has <laughs> yeah. only caused uh, culturally a suspicion around institutions and uh and now with the uh, deconstruction movement mm -hmm. which is really a movement it's a phenomena it's happening 
um, there are people who are deconstructing right out of the faith, right out yeah. of the church. And I'm actually working on an article. Uh, it'll come out um, in a month or so about deconstruction, which I believe that there is a, a good kind of deconstruction. That's yeah. really a necessary part of spiritual formation, but there's this kind of really ugly, bitter vitriol in certain streams of this mm -hmm. deconstruction movement that, you know, people really cast a negative light on the church. Um, the flood waters of secularism yeah. continue to rise, uh, which affects the church and just the polarization of our culture um, over politics, over social issues like racial justice and things like that. If that polarization has hurt the church because yeah. that polarization has been brought in. And uh, so it's it it's the state of the church it's 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 tough sledding it's yeah, it's, it is. it's it's high water wherever you go it's it's tough right now yeah i i, I we say the fruit is a lot higher in the trees there you uh, go you know it used to be on you could pick it off the ground and just reach it and now it's way up in the trees and if you want yeah. to reach people you got to learn how to climb a tree yeah uh, you got to learn how to get to the top you can't just shake it from the bottom Right. Uh, and, uh, and our characters change, the cultures change. So, yeah. Um, in your, in your, um, service to Christ and his bride, um, uh, uh pastors are struggling. Uh, yes. they, you know, we've, we've seen, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a rash, but we've certainly seen the coverage of, of many pastors who've taken their own lives. We've seen sure. many pastors who have flamed out morally, physically, spiritually, ethically. Uh, it's it's hardly a, a week goes by that I don't hear a past of a pastor who has completely deconstructed. Yep. Um, uh, and, you know, on the flip side, we have churches that um, are are shoving pastors out the door in the name of Jesus over things that Jesus didn't even talk about. <laughs> and so uh, we're seeing all that. Um if you were going to, you've been serving Jesus in the church as a pastor, as a lead pastor, as an associate pastor. If you were going to say something to pastors, what would you tell them? Don't quit. <laughs> I mean, I think some people legitimately need to take time away from vocational ministry. Um, but I also believe that a sort of perseverance and long suffering is, is, is a fruit born of the spirit. Mm -hmm. So I, I say don't quit. I don't want to be glib about that. I don't want to be dismissive. Um, within that, don't quit. Um, what I encourage pastors to do is find friendship among other pastors. So you have colleagues, you have a, a community, so you have that support. And then I just encourage pastors to lean heavily into the prayers of the church. Mm. So part of my own spiritual journey is the discovery of, of the real whole liturgical side of the church. Mm -hmm. So liturgical prayer, the liturgical seasons, um, have all been a lifeline for me that's, yeah. that's rooted and anchored me in the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, so don't quit, find good friends in ministry, pastors outside your church that you can be vulnerable with and, and open and and lean heavily um, into the prayers and the liturgy um, of, of the church because it's hard work. Pastoring is hard work. We just had a new members Sunday 
um, new members lunch mm -hmm. just last Sunday. And it was the first one since COVID. Um, the few people who have joined our church sort of in the midst and right after the COVID pandemic, it would be more like just a coffee meeting. We were still doing right. social distancing. We're gathering people in a, in, in a room. And then we just weren't having a lot of new people. And so it was just coffee meetings with me. Uh, but we had enough people right now. So we had like 30 people, teenagers, kids, adults. Um, and it was such a joy. And when I was reflecting on that, I thought, you know, the counterbalance to the joy of welcoming new people into your church is the, um, the kind of dread, the sorrow, uh, the sadness when people are leaving the church. And um, yeah, it's hard. Being a pastor is hard. Um, but don't quit, find good friends, lean into the prayers of the church. Mm. I think sometimes we forget that a lot of the liturgy was born out of people who, who lived in cultural transition. Um, exactly. And it was their way of saying, I got to write something down that anchors me. Yes. I've got to put something together that holds me in place. Um, yeah. It, it's so true because my discovery of liturgy is primarily rooted in the Book of Common Prayer, mm -hmm. the Episcopal Anglican uh, Book of Common Prayer. And, you know, people hear about the Church of England and, oh, Henry VIII wanted to get divorced, so he started a new religion. <laughs> well, okay, that's a part of the story. Um, but Thomas Cramner, uh, when he first um, collected the very first Book of Common Prayer, it was a time of radical change in the 16th century. You know, the Protestant Reformation was on and it was a good thing. And I think when people think of the Reformation, they think um, Luther and Calvin and their contributions. And I think they often miss Cramner's contribution of this prayer book. So while I'm not Episcopalian, um, I use a book of common prayer um, every day. Um, I asked, I asked an Episcopal priest one time, I said, listen, I'm a non-denominational pastor and I actually, I don't even believe in non-denominate non-denominationalism, but here I am, right? This is, this is just where I'm at. I don't really ever believe in it, but, um, I said, but I've discovered the common prayer tradition, hmm. but I don't use all of the book. Like I've never had to ordain a bishop. <laughs> That's right. not something I do. Um, I don't, I don't use everything. I kind of pick and choose but it's been such a delight. I said, is that okay? And he said, Thomas Cramner wrote the first book of common prayer for the English speaking world, oh, man. Uh, primarily there in England in the 16th century. And he said, I think Cramner would be happy uh, yeah. that English speakers are still uh, using the common uh, prayer tradition. So he I, said, it's I, okay. I love that. And I could be wrong in just my understanding of this, but the reformation, uh, the the first big movement towards Protestantism uh, was really a correction of a theological trajectory. Yes, uh, the the Puritan movement, which came after that, uh, was really uh, uh, a statement of of the personal responsibility and yes. the morality and the ethics of the Christian faith. And those two movements carried Christianity. Uh, gave birth to the holiness movement of the 1800s. And yes. then, um, and I think the Pentecostal movements of 1906 stands yes. on its own. Uh, not really, it, I'm sure there's somebody much smarter than me who could connect them all together. But those three movements, the Pentecostal movement, the Reformation and the Puritan movement, 
really have shaped Western Christianity yes. uh, as much as anything. And I think it's important because the Book of Common Prayer comes out of those movements. Um, right. And yeah, and it was it, it was a you know the, the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century was a theological, a needed theological shift. Yeah. With its uh elevation of scripture, not disregarding tradition, but its elevation of scripture. And so it was about the form, mm -hmm. both the form of our and shape of our churches theologically, but also the form and shape of our devotional life. Mm, and yeah, so Cramner, when he was writing the book of Common Prayer, wanted it to be saturated with scripture. And so, for example, part of my morning prayer is I pray the collect from Sunday morning. Um, now, collect looks like collect, mm -hmm. um, but in the uh, Anglican and Episcopal tradition um, and others as well, uh, it's just a, a, a prayer prayed on Sunday morning. And it's interesting if you if you know the scriptures, you know where these prayers come from. So here was the prayer. Uh, for last Sunday, which was the fourth Sunday of Easter. So I prayed this prayer this morning. So my mm -hmm. tradition is what I do is I pray the collect from Sunday every day um, through Saturday, and then I get a new prayer on Sunday. But here, here's the prayer from Sunday. Oh God, whose son Jesus is the good shepherd of your people, mm -hmm. grant that when we hear his voice, we may know him who calls us each by name and follow where he leads who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns one God forever and ever. Amen. Wow. I mean, that's just straight from John 10. It's just yeah. John 10 stuff. So Cramner wanted to saturate the, the prayer life of the Church of England in Scripture. And so you're right. It gave it form and shape. Yeah. Um, but then the, the pietistic movement and then later the holiness movement then put the intentionality in it, mm -hmm. the sort of heart devotion. Yeah. And I think those two streams... Um, the pietistic stream and the, that Protestant stream is not only did it filter into Pentecostalism, which you're right to say is its own thing, but modern evangelicalism, yeah, um, yeah. which is the American expression of the Christian faith. I mean, your average person who is not a believer in the United States, if they're going to critique the church, it's probably the evangelical world. Yes. Um, yeah. But but that's the roots of evangelicalism is in that right. pietistic, revivalistic, and then sort of reformation uh, movements kind of coming together. Um, and again, we can critique evangelicalism, but to have a right form and shape to your theology and prayer life, uh, one that's deeply biblical, and then to have one's heart um, focused and attentive to the presence of, of God. These are good things. Absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and very, very necessary and, and needed things for sure. Well, they act like guardrails that keep us on a track that yes. uh, that actually show us where the road turns uh, in such great ways. So I love those descriptions. Uh, Rodney Stark in his book, uh, I'm trying to remember um, from barbarian to Christian, uh, he talks about the movement into into Europe and into Scotland, Ireland, and all throughout Europe and how the, the Christian movement went in. Um, he takes, uh, he just takes the bravery of people who, uh, even before the reformers, um, had an anchor of who Jesus was and this clarity of mission and who went places and saw no fruit, uh, only yeah. to see 
heaven burst forth on earth with people being transformed. And he just talks about that one of the greatest miracles um, that, uh, and he doesn't say it this way, because I don't, I don't know that Rodney is a follower of Jesus. Um, he, but he says basically that it's remarkable that uh, cultures were transformed with this message of a carpenter <laughs> from the first century. And, you know, Paul says, I'm the gospel is the power of God. You know, it doesn't contain it, doesn't reflect, reflect, reflect it or refract it. It is. And there's yeah. something simple uh, about that, that, that message of the gospel. Um, so uh, I appreciate the way you're thinking. I wrote down, I got to get me another copy of the book of common prayers. I haven't, I don't know where mine went. I had one years and years ago <laughs> when I was uh, a younger man than I am today. Um, and I was just going, it's not on my bookshelf. I'm looking at my, I don't have that <laughs> anymore. Um, but Hey, I want to ask you something. You've just written a book and, yes. uh, you have, uh, uh, it, it comes out when August 22nd, oh, you can hardly wait. got to wait forever. Oh man. That's like knowing your Christmas present in June, <laughs> isn't it? I, I finished the book last well, Good Friday is when I finish the introduction because you know, I usually write the book and then the last thing I write is the first thing people read, the introduction. And I finished it Good Friday 2022. Oh, gosh. And it doesn't <laughs> release until August 2023. Crazy. Man, man. Um, tell, let, let, me, let me ask you a couple of questions uh, sure. about it. Uh, first of all, how is this different from By the Way? Yeah, so By the Way was really a comprehensive book for discipleship. Um, I, I have been a discipleship pastor going on 12 years, and I was always looking for that one resource that was sort of an integration of the main themes of discipleship, but a book I could use to disciple people. And right, I couldn't right. find that one volume. And so I wrote it. That's a That's a good book idea. When you're searching for a book and you can't find it, then maybe you should write it. And so it was an integrated view of discipleship, but it wasn't discipleship from a detached observer's perspective. It was a book written to disciple people. Yeah. And yeah. so I wrote discussion questions with every mm -hmm. chapter because when I wrote it, I envisioned groups of people um, reading and studying it and discussing it together, which happened, which, which thrilled me. Um, so it was kind of a comprehensive um, discipleship book. Uh, the new book, Centering Jesus, is, um, well, also a book about Jesus, yeah. um, because I love the bride of Christ, but I love Christ first. And so <laughs> I'm a, I'm, I'm a Jesus man. Yeah. Uh, until, until the day I stop breathing, I'm going to be a Jesus man and, and then hopefully continue on in the age to come. <laughs> so I'm always thinking about Jesus. Yeah. I'm infatuated with Jesus. I'm fascinated. And I'm a deep believer that the way of Jesus is the way to real human flourishing. So it's a book about Jesus, but the particular interest for me was focusing on Jesus as the Lamb of God. Mm. And this we see, of course, John the Baptist, when Jesus yeah. is approaching the River Jordan, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb. Yeah. And then throughout the book of Revelation, John the Revelator um, is seeing Jesus as a lamb who was slain. 
So there's a deep biblical root to this image. And I think right now in this cultural moment, we need a fresh vision of Jesus as the lamb of God. And then sort of imagining Jesus as the lamb at the center mm. of our Christian experience and in our work on mission. Um, so yeah, it's a Jesus book, like by the way, yeah. um, but it takes the lamb as a particular uh, motif. So this is a, this is much better than just a flannel graph Jesus, right? <laughs> it is. It is better than a flannel graph Jesus. Although I'm pro flannel graph. I just had lunch with my um, oldest uh, adult son and um, growing up in the uh, 2000s children's ministry at our church in Georgia, the teacher used flannel graph and he remembers yeah. a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, but yes, this is different than the flannel graph. Jesus. I, for those of you who don't know uh, what flannel graph is, just <laughs> Google it because it's yes. going to be hard to explain. I actually have some <laughs> in my cupboard over here. Uh, and so my wife was looking, she goes, what are you going to do with this? I said, nobody throws flannel graph Jesus in a corner. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> so um give us give us a uh give us uh unpack some of the meaning of lamb of god there's an imagery sure. there that i think is lost because we're not really shepherds we're not really farmers we don't have a sacrificial system right. in our culture so unpack some of that for us so that we yeah and I, I i mean i grew up in the city uh one of the opening chapters i kind of talk about my lack of real firsthand experience with farm animals um, it's not really a lot, um, but, you know, readers of the Bible will recognize, you know, the Passover lamb and the significance of that image. Um, but I think you also have to um, have some working knowledge of sheep, at least a little bit. Uh, one thing that would help people who are just, you know, urban dwellers is just go to YouTube and Google it and watch sheep and, and Google, you know, lambs on the farm or something mm -hmm. like that and just watch them. Um, I tell a story in the book of one of my up close and personal encounters with a lamb was with our live nativity. So every year we do Christmas Eve with live nativity and we have live animals. Yeah. And we have this family in Oklahoma and they bring camels. So our wise men enter in on camelback. That's nice. interesting. And then we they'll bring um, a mule. Uh, it's not really a donkey. It's a mule that Mary rides in on. And then they'll bring sheep for the shepherds to come right. in. Well, one year they had a little baby lamb. And so they brought two sheep and this little bitty lamb. And I was just watching him kind of um, in our holding area, kind of uh, backstage, watching this little lamb. And it's just like watching a little two, three-year-old, you know, toddler, just rambunctious yeah. and inquisitive. And so anyway, I'm my role with our live nativity is I'm backstage cueing uh, the actors and the animal handlers, like when to come in at what point. And um, we had a, a teenage girl who was one of the shepherds and her responsibility was to hold the little lamb. Now, my oldest, who I just mentioned, he was a teenager, maybe 16, 17, big guy, six foot four. He was a, a shepherd pulling a sheep and this teenage girl had this little lamb and they get up on the stage and, you know, we're doing the whole production on Christmas Eve. And I had moved into the sanctuary and was sitting close to the stage. And I could see that little lamb trying to wiggle free from her arms. <laughs> and I thought, if this little lamb gets loose, 
we're going to be a YouTube sensation in all the wrong ways. <laughs> and uh, luckily my son noticed it. And he reached down and he scooped up that lamb and held it close to his chest and, and the lamb was fine. Um, but lambs are cute. Lambs are rambunctious. Um, and then in the book of Revelation, the lamb that's depicted is a lamb who has been slain. Yeah. A lamb who's not just cute and rambunctious, but a lamb that's been slaughtered as a part of sacrifice. But in John's revelation, that lamb is ruling and reigning. And to me, it's that image of the lamb, which of course is King Jesus that we need right now. Yeah. That Jesus not only rescues us from sin and death through his crucifixion and resurrection, the cross, Christ crucified, the lamb slain, is also Jesus revealing what the kingdom of God is like. So the cross is both rescuing, but it's revealing. It yeah. shows us this is how God, in and through Jesus, is ruling and reigning. He rules as the slain lamb. Wow. So I think that's the image we need right now. I think as Christians sense the loss of cultural privilege, the loss of cultural power, where Christians had a dominant voice in culture, yeah. they're sensing that loss. They're, they're trying to grasp for more power, but that's not what we need. We don't need a powerful kick-butt Messiah. What we need is to re-envision, oh, wait, 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 the kingdom doesn't come through conventional means of power. The kingdom comes through the actions of a slain lamb. Mm. That this is the king that we are pledging our eternal allegiance to. Yeah. It's King Jesus who rules as a lamb in the ways of the lamb. Man, I love that. I, I think um, I think that it's it's not just a different expression of power, it's a redefining of power. Very good. And and I and I love that imagery. I know Peter also talks about the lamb who was. Uh, from the foundations of the world was slain. And so the apostles, Paul, Peter, John, at least the three of those, and who knows what the others would have uh, included if they had written stuff down, uh, all talk about this this imagery of of a lamb. They saw something in the lamb that we just don't see, yeah. um, that, that God took this weakest of things, this pure thing, and used his power through that, that weakest and pure thing to say, Watch me change the course of humanity. Watch yes. me change the course of people uh, in Egypt. Now watch me change the course of people uh, in eternity and in this kingdom, you know, because after Passover, Israel was different. There was right. a new movement. And after the cross, the world was different. There was a new movement uh, right. called the church. And so there's some beauty in that. So yeah. as you're writing this book, um, how did it affect you personally? Did, was there any any kind of thing that you said, I'm writing this stuff and it's just moving my soul in any <laughs> specific way? Yeah, there's, you know, writing is a labor of love. And I just got back from a three-day writer's retreat that my publisher had put together. And we spent a lot of time talking about just the writing process. And um, it's a labor of love because there's sometimes... I'm writing and my fingers can't type fast enough. You know, the ideas and the images and everything's coming together. And then there's times so I wrote my book 
um, through the winter, I had finished it Good Friday, 2022, but I was doing a lot of the writing January, February, Northwest Missouri. It's cold. And I was primarily writing on Fridays, which is typically a Sabbath day rest. I, I usually do no work on Fridays, but when I have a book deadline, I take some, I steal a little bit of my Sabbath time yeah. and do some writing. And there were some times I would just sit in front of a blank screen. I actually mm -hmm. came to the last chapter. Yeah. The last chapter, the reign of the lamb. Um, and I, it was going to end the chapter and end the book with this great crescendo of the victory of the lamb that we see in the book of revelation. So I had a lot of the material. I just didn't know how to get started. Mm. And I was just sitting in front of a blank screen. So you're asking, how is it moving my soul? Well, I had those moments, but I also had moments where it was just pure drudgery. Yeah. It was just, there's a deadline. I have to write. I don't know what, and then writers go through these cycles. Um, a lot of times what happens to me is in the editing process, because I finished writing, yeah. you know, April of last year. And, you know, here we are. It's it's you know May now when we're recording this, you know, 13 months later. And it's gone through multiple rounds of editing. Yeah. And a lot of times in the editing process, when I'm going back and rereading, I'll reread things that I wrote and go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's good. And so, but writers go through this weird cycle yeah. of the drudgery and then you start reading things that you wrote and you're like, oh man, is this really, I don't even know if anyone's going to connect with anyone. You second guess yourself. But I would say overall, when I had finished my last reading of the manuscript, it was, I don't know, copy editing, like round three or something. I did have this like little, like burst of hope. Um, hope that if people who love God and are trying to love their neighbor and love the church, if they can get hold of this image of Jesus as the lamb and begin to put some of these practices into their own personal practice, mm. man, there's such hope for the vitality of the church. Yeah. And, um, so I, I was moved in that editing stage, um, with, with just feeling hope again. Yeah. That's powerful to me. I, I do a little bit of writing as well. And, you know, my process is uh, whenever I'm stuck, I outline things. Uh, I'm I, What story am I telling and what what have I missed in this story? And so I just outline things and then I just freeform write. And then I come back and go, this is garbage. Yeah. You know, did a two-year-old with thumbs type this, you know, and I can never yeah. get my form and from correct. It's always my R and my O. It's like, Oh, what's wrong with me. But yes. um, in the process of writing, I think you look back and you go, uh, you can tell times in which the Holy spirit uh, was just simply clicking the keys. Yeah. And then other times you, it, I, I those are mining times to me when you're sitting there clicking keys and you really got to mind what the spirit has said. Uh, it's not looking for something new. It's really going, what, what were you saying to me that, yeah. you know, what story was I trying to tell? Um, so who's your audience with this book? If you would go, hey, that's the person I want to read this besides. Everyone. Well, of course. Yeah. A authors are like, my audience is everybody. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because when you do negotiations with publishers, they want to know your target audience who you're writing to. And I, I mean, I'm writing to everyone. Who I have in mind is my own church. Mm. I mean, I think I when I write, 
I write books for the church. Yeah. And I just think about the people in my church. Um, so I'm not writing for the Academy. Um, I do my best to cite my sources and, and try to pretend like I have, uh, all my academic ducks in a row. Um, actually, uh, that's a little tongue in cheek. I, I pay attention to that cause I want to make sure I cite things right. right. And, um, there's a little bit uh, with me though. I, I, I kind of feel that tension, um, that I, that I want to be credible, um, you know, in the sort of academic side. But that, that's not who I'm writing for. I'm writing for the church. I'm thinking of the people that I pastor. I think about the people um, that, you know, I'm attending uh, their dad's funeral, the people yeah. I'm visiting okay. in the hospital, the people I serve communion to, the people that I'm in small groups with, mm -hmm. people I serve with in VBS before I retired. Yeah. I retired from VBS a couple years ago because it was time to pass it on to some younger dads. But <laughs> Um, yeah. So it's the people that I'm with in my congregation. That's yeah. who I'm writing to. Yeah. And, and so uh, one of those people, that dad who you've handed a baton to, and he's now uh, got a passion for, for VBS and the life change uh, that happens there. And he reads this book. Um, what do you hope uh, happens in his heart? Well, I hope that his and so I know the guy who sort of well, there's two different younger dads who have taken over two different responsibilities ahead of VBS. So I'm thinking about people. And I hope that if they will read Centering Jesus, that they'll have a new love and enthusiasm, not just for their own personal relationship with Jesus, because I want that to grow too, but this new invigoration that we can live the Jesus way, that mm. we can walk in the ways of the lamb and that in doing so we can be the instruments by which God is changing the world. Mm. Now changing the world is always, you know, hyperbolic language. When right. I think of changing the world, I think changing workplaces and changing right. neighborhoods and changing yeah. schools and it's pieces of changing the, the atmosphere and climate yeah. where, where we go. Yeah. Um, but I want it to prompt action because that's mm. sort of an action orientation. My understanding yeah. of following Jesus, and that I think is such a great metaphor because there's action. It's not simply learning more information and, right. and, and creating a catalog of God facts so that you can win if you play Bible trivia. Um, I want people to read and through what I'm presenting in these chapters, I want them to have a real encounter with Jesus. Mm. And, but I want it to change and motivate how they live. Yeah. Um, because if we just get, you know, more knowledge, you know, uh, more, you know, pithy tweets or Facebook posts where I have no hope that that's, what's going to bring real change in our communities right. and neighborhoods. But if it will so affect our hearts that it changes how we live, that's mm. when we see real change. Yeah, I like that. I think um, we we define following Jesus as um, as taking uh, taking footsteps in the direction of Jesus until your footsteps align with His footprints. Oh, I like and, that. And it's just the whole idea of of learning the cadence of Jesus's walk. Uh, so that we can walk with him because, you know, everybody's got a gate, everybody's got a cadence and right. Jesus is a kingdom cadence. It's a, it's an eternal cadence. It's a gracious and merciful cadence. It's truth and grace combined in such a way that his gate is powerful. 
Yeah. Um, and we want to learn to take steps, put our footsteps towards Jesus until we have connected with him, that our footsteps become uh, in line with his footprints. And so as we think about that, and you think about the process of uh, of writing and putting this together, I want to talk a little bit about community. Sure. Um, I'm convinced that I cannot follow Jesus apart from other people. Right. Uh, you know, and so, you know, I'm I was happy to see that we had tools for online. I'm, I know there's places around the world where uh, people cannot gather. And if they do, it's in small pieces and such. Uh, but overall, the idea of community is it goes into the Trinity. It begins with the Godhead and moves forward. John writes in 1 John that uh, that what we've seen, what we've handled is what I should be able, is, is actually the anchor for our community. Yeah. You know, he says, we're going to tell this to you so that you can have full joy and we can have joy together. Yeah. In this community of knowing the lamb, as you would describe him. Um, talk, talk to, uh, talk to us about uh, how you see community and its value and where we're centering the lamb, centering Jesus falls into both the development and the strengthening of community. That's a yeah, long question. We, Just jump in. We, <laughs> you, you, but you're right on. We, we cannot live this Christian life. We can't live this life of following Jesus uh, by ourselves. And one of the enemies of Christian faith is individualism. Um, I like to think of sin as an acrostic, S-I-N, as secularism, individualism, and nationalism, that these mm. three are the three big enemies, but right at the middle of it, right? Right at the heart of sin is that I, yeah. this, this lie uh, from uh, the enlightenment that um, we can do life on our, on our own. Mm. And um, it is a lie and it is an enemy, uh, but there are so many of the people we're making disciples of are coming out of this individualistic culture. Yeah. And so it takes a lot of patience. You know, when I connect with people who are new, we just uh, started alpha for the first time in our church. Yep. Uh, it's going really well. And we have some people who are not yet Christians um, who are part of alpha and they're in their exploration phase. But when I, when I connect with those kind of people, I have to be really patient because they're just analyzing and processing everything from an individualistic lens yeah. Um, so part of our formation in Christ likeness is to acknowledge the lie of individualism, this self-sufficiency, self-made man, quote unquote, um, kind of ideas in our culture and recognize that we were made for one another. Yeah. Um, I am an introvert. I'm an introvert who loves people. Um, but that's really the work of Jesus. I mean, if it wasn't for Jesus and the work of Jesus in my life, I'd still be living that lie that I can just do life on my own, just use people to better myself. Right. Um, so I think when people begin to recognize, wait a minute, we're creating the image of God, who is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as you mentioned. Um, and I'm 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 creating this image that is in its very essence and nature um communal. So I, I, I need one another. Yeah. Yeah. And of course the church is not 
um, an individual experience, though I think plenty of Christians treat it that way. Um, but I think that's a misuse of the church. Right. The church is an interconnected uh, system of relationships. That's what church is. And we are shaped and formed not only by what we're hearing and praying and singing, not just the, the elements of our worship service, but those conversations before or after service. And then those relationships are being being forged. That is forming us in the ways of Jesus. Yeah. Um, and this is why I have hope, because our culture is so polarized and divided. And so as I am reimagining church with Jesus at the center, Jesus as the lamb of God, mm -hmm. I sort of see Jesus as, as, as the hub and it's what is drawing us all together. So in my congregation, I'm thinking of people that I have a good relationship with who I would have never known except that Jesus has brought us together in this fellowship. Right. And I think the way that we live together in community is a part of our mission because it can become a witness uh, to the right. world that this is how we can um, out of many become one. Yeah. Right. So one of the mottos of the United States, the Latin phrase E pluribus unum. Right. Out of the many one that has been the American experiment, which fractured in the 19th century um, and is currently in the 21st century fracturing again. And so I have little hope. Um, no, I'll go on record. I have zero hope uh, <laughs> um, that politicos can ever bring yeah. real unity. But I think Jesus can. Yeah. And so. We can in the church, if we will deeply love one another and learn to love people who are different than us within Christian community, then we can become a witness yeah. that this is how you live in harmony. It's, it's the Jesus way. Mm, I like that. Um, when we talk about, about living in community um, and, you know, our, our think, my thinking is this, is that, uh, what we've done is we have created doctrinal, and I'm a big fan of, of, of good theology. I yep. hope nobody doesn't hear that, that I'm not. Um, but theology very rarely unifies us if it, it divides us. <clears throat> because the theology is held by the power of the theologian. Yes. Um, you know, and, and, and that very rarely brings unity. Um, you know, the only thing that I know that brings unity, that, that successfully brings unity in crisis is crisis or mission, um, you know, and crisis uh, only brings unity for a short time. Right. Mission brings unity for a much longer span, has a much longer lifespan or shelf life. Um, and so when, when you think of centering Jesus, um, it almost sounds like that is a missional statement. Is that an accurate way to understand what you're telling us? That we want to put, our mission is to put Jesus in the center or to allow his centrality to come clear to us because he's already in the center. Yeah, I don't necessarily see it that way. I don't, okay. I didn't write centering Jesus as a missional 
book. That's not, it's more, I see it more as a spiritual practice. Okay. It's one yeah. of the practices of spiritual formation Okay, good. is to keep Jesus at the center. I think the overflow of that then is mission. Um, so as I see mission and formation, something our, our pastoral leadership team will we'll talk about it from time to time to sort of dance the tension sometimes between mission and formation, but I, I like to see it as a dance. Yeah. Um, I see mission and formation as a dance, but for me, I see the formation as sort of the leading partner. Hmm. Um, mission can bring people together. Um, but mission, um, or maybe I would use the word that's, that's more secular and less of a religious term. Um, activism can bring people together. And so there are Christians who grew up in churches that mission meant evangelism. Right. And then, well, what about, what about poverty? What about racial injustice? What about economic inequality? Yeah. What about um, underprivileged and underserved pockets of our neighborhood? Yeah. So, and then their churches had no resources for that. And they're like, well, I just, you know, I, I want to be a part of, of really making a change in my area sort of activism, which right. I think Christians would see that's a part of mission. So they kind of run to that. So I, for me, the, our mission, which I believe is to make disciples, to go into all the uh, world and make disciples of all the nations. This is our mission. It really right. flows from our formation. In other okay. words, the closer we're drawing to Jesus and the more we're becoming like Jesus, the more our footsteps are falling in line with his footprints right. then the overflow of that then is is mission okay. at least that's that's the way i see it yeah no i think that's a great way to see it we a part of the the dance of mission and formation um is is the uh it's the inside out uh, understanding of self and self-awareness you know, there's been there was a huge movement of formation that that came out of Foster's book and many other books that once once it took place without good leadership, I'm going to say it that way. Uh, it really became I have learned the secret handshake to be friends with yeah, God. Right. And maybe if you try these things. And so we become uh, what I call um, uh, we are. Um, uh, descript or prescriptively descriptive. I mean, we're mm -hmm. prescribing things. Well, if you know, when when this thing happened in, in Azusa or not Azusa, but um, Asbury, people yes. came from all over the world to see. Well, if we could do what they're doing, then maybe. And so, I have several friends who are college uh, leaders at universities who are going. Yep, we're going to start that whole thing right here, and uh, that. And so we come in and we get a. Uh, we get a description of something and now it becomes a prescription. Uh, right. You know, the book of Acts is not a prescription. It's a description. Right. It's historical. Right. And so uh, as you describe, I love the way you're describing the, the spiritual formation and what it produces. I think it produces um, what already exists. Mission already exists. It doesn't create mission. Yes. It gives right. clarity to mission. Is yes. how I would understand it, and I think that's what I hear you saying. Yes. I, yeah. No I, mission already exists. So I I think about 
you know, mission and its different perspectives is I'm joining in what God's already doing. Yeah. You know, so if we're going to serve the poor in our community, that's a part of our mission. Mm -hmm. Um, we're, we're working with the poor. It's not like we got God in this little container and we're going to take it to these poor people. Right. No, God's already at work among the poor in our neighborhood. We're just joining in what God's already doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but see, it's the form without the formation. I wouldn't do that. I right. am by nature, extremely selfish. Right. And why would I care anything about a bunch of poor people in my neighborhood? Well, it's because I've been spending time with Jesus Yeah. yeah. and Jesus, the, the God's heart is bent towards the poor. And so it's from hanging out with Jesus that I now have a heart for those that have been mm-hmm oppressed and marginalized and kind of pushed to the fringes. It's nothing that I've come up with, but my heart is now formed towards that. And there are people, as you mentioned, Foster, of course, Richard Foster, extremely influential in my heart and life. Yes. And spiritual formation in the last 20, 30 years has really become a thing. Mm -hmm. And, but there are people that they're much more interested in just spiritual formation is like a intellectual hobby. I just want to learn more and read more books, which mm-hmm. I advocate reading books. I got one coming out in August. <laughs> I, I'm pro that, but I've already shared my heart that even with my book, I want it to lead to action. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I think you can treat spiritual formation as just a hobby, but I'm interested in actually being formed mm-hmm. into Christ likeness. Right. And it was funny, but we were talking Recently, my, my I got two adult kids and I got one teenager and I got a grandson now. And we, we, we were talking recently and, and how my youngest, so my oldest and youngest are like 10 years apart. Right. And how my youngest son, who's 13 now, he, uh, he got a much more patient dad <laughs> <laughs> and, and yes, it's just age and maturity, but I believe it's spiritual formation. Yeah. I, for I, sure. I really think that I have not yet arrived. Um, but I, in drawing closer to Jesus, I have become a much more patient person, but then also drawing close to Jesus is why I'm interested in advocating for justice Mm -hmm. and for being on mission for God, both in my community, in my neighborhood and wherever God sends me. Yeah. I I think, um, there's a beauty to what you're talking about, Derek, in that, um, there, there is a cause and effect uh, that is that is uh, cyclical in the sense that it's either spiraling up and increasing right. or it's spiraling down. And as I as I you know as I get closer to Jesus, my the mission becomes more clear. Yes. But there's a transference from my mission, which is self-centered or educational or uh, transactional, into right. his mission, which is redemptive. And, right. uh, and, and, and it, 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 it affirms the dignity that God gave them when he said, let us make man in our image. It doesn't create dignity, just responds to something God had already yep. said. Yeah. Um, and that, that cycle. So how, and I don't know that I, I haven't been able to read your book cause it's not out yet. Um, but when it comes out, I will be reading it for sure. Um, but how do you address uh, the the connection between the closer I I am, the more that Jesus is centered in me and in my view, uh, 
the transforming that that does. How do you connect those? And do you give us anything practical that, you know, people say, well, we want to center here, centering Jesus. Well, does that mean I get up 10 minutes early and read Jesus calling? And I'm not opposed to that. Does it mean I got to go buy a common book of prayers? Uh, (laughs) What does that actually look like? Yeah, there's practices all throughout the book. Um, yeah, it's it's not just Bible study. It's not just theological speculation. Lots of practices. So the 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 book looks at centering Jesus in three areas: mm-hmm. um, spiritual formation. That's the first section. What does it look like to have Jesus as the Lamb of God at the center of our understanding of spiritual formation? Um, Can you give me section- spiritual formation in a sentence so that? My, my, your friends are smart. My friends are, they're smart too. I don't want to call them stupid, but uh, (laughs) some of the people I know they're going to go spiritual formation. I don't know what that, I don't know what that sentence uh, means. Sure. Spiritual formation, spiritual, the spiritual is the Holy spirit. The formation is the becoming more like Jesus. So spiritual formation is a spirit driven process of taking on the character and lifestyle and values of Jesus. Okay, got um, it. So that's spiritual formation. Uh, the middle section is is keeping Jesus at the center of our moral life, mm-hmm. uh, thinking of it foundationally, um, thinking of Jesus at the center of faith, hope, and love. Mm-hmm. Faith, hope, and love, Aquinas called the theological virtues. Uh, sort of the foundation, the ground from which all other Christian virtue flowers. And then the last section is Jesus at the center of our common life together. And so in each of those sections, practices all along the way. But I'll start in the kind of the beginning with um, the spiritual formation, because I have two chapters on what I think are, are the two most primary spiritual disciplines, and that's scripture reading and prayer. So what does it look like to keep Jesus as the lamb at the center of our reading of scripture, which I think is extremely important. I think I can really, it's the key. Uh, it's reading and what Brad Jerzak calls the Emmaus way, right? So Jesus appears on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection, two disciples, and he begins to uh, open up the scripture, starting with the law of Moses all the way through the prophets and he shows them the things in there written concerning himself. Mm. And so how do we have a Jesus-centered reading of Scripture? And so there's practices on how to do that. Um, and then the chapter that one of my editors for the book, the, the uh, copy editor, he said that the chapter on prayer he thought was the real strength of the book. And that is how to keep Jesus at the center of our life of prayer. And, um, I use primarily in that chapter, the Jesus prayer, um, as a way to keep Jesus centered in our life of prayer. And the Jesus prayer is perhaps the most ancient prayer, uh, in the Christian experience. It's 10 words, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. And uh, so I give lots of practices on how to incorporate the Jesus prayer into your prayer life. Um, And then, yeah, just through the other sections and chapters, there are practices um, in every single chapter. The, the, the Jesus prayer. I've never heard it stated in that way. And so I really love that. I wrote that down. Um, 
give me if you can uh, i don't want i don't want to do a spoiler here but give me if you can uh one way in which i can use the jesus prayer cuz uh you just peaked every every uh every nuance of my <laughs> mind going ooh i want to know that i want to know that well uh, the resources i draw upon in that chapter is from eastern orthodoxy okay eastern orthodox spirituality and you might go so far as to say is grounded in that prayer. And, and here, and here, here's the big one. I think for most Protestants and evangelicals, when it comes to the Jesus prayer, how to implement it, uh, don't be afraid of repetition. Mm. Um, I talk about it in, in the book, so I won't give away everything in that chapter, but there's this kind of, well, Jesus talks about vain repetition and don't think you'll be heard for your many words. In the Orthodox tradition, um, they pray the Jesus prayer over and over and over and over. Um, in the Orthodox tradition, there's a way of praying that's called um, hesychastic prayer. Hmm. And it is a form of prayer that primarily uses the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And it's a prayer that you pray with your breathing where you breathe in half of that prayer and breathe out and you know orthodox monks will pray it hundred times hundreds of times and so i have begun to incorporate it in how i pray and i may not pray it a hundred times i might pray it 20 times in a row and in the book i, I really explain the whole pro and there's a whole process yeah but the the quick, what I would give you today is don't be afraid of the repetition. Right. We have this idea, more modern evangelical American Christians, that prayer has to be spontaneous. And I pray from my heart, which is true. That's a, that's a form of prayer. I pray from my heart every day. It's a part of how I pray. Um, but for formation, yeah. there is something very formational about slowly and attentively praying a prayer like the Jesus prayer repetitively. Um, now you do have to do it slow and, and the work. And again, I, I explained the whole process in the, in the book, but the real work of praying the Jesus prayer in a repetitive way is giving attention to each and every word, mm. because what Jesus is warning us about is not repetition per se, but vain or empty yeah. repetition. And so the 10 words of the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. Well, outside of the prepositions, every word in that yeah. is filled with meaning and significance. Right. And so the real right. work of praying the Jesus prayer is not just to recite it, but to slowly and purposefully pray each word. And um, so I explained, for example, one of the things that happened to me, and I explained this in, in the chapter on, uh, on praying this prayer, is sometimes when I wake up at night and I can't go back to sleep, I start praying the Jesus prayer. Mm. And it puts me in this very peaceful state that I drift on back to sleep. And, and there's times because I've prayed the prayer so much because 
there, there's one Orthodox um, bishop. He just died recently. He talked about how some of the uh, monks in the monastery would wake themselves up at night praying that prayer. I'm like, oh, that could never happen. But there's times I wake up and I can't go back to sleep. But the first thing that comes to me in the middle of the night is pray this prayer. Yeah. And it brings me into the presence of the Lord, into a place of peace. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I probably said more than I even want to, but no. there's even more in the, in the chapter on that. And I, I just experienced so much formation yeah. around that yeah. prayer that I uh, am excited to share that with others. You're describing uh, the process of training. Um, right. You, it's spiritual training for your mind. Uh, it's spiritual training for the, the way that God shapes us. And, yes. you know, all training by nature is repetitive. Of course. Um, but it's intentional. And so yes. in the Jesus prayer, we're going to, when we read this, we're going to get something that is very intentional to shape this posture uh, before God that is of humility um, and of, of receiving and of asking uh, yeah. to, to live in the mercy of God. And training is really a better word, I think, than spiritual discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eugene Peterson always talked about how he hated that word discipline because yeah. uh, it just it's it, it's not a creative word. Training is much better. Yeah. yeah. Right? John, John Ortberg uh, said years ago, uh, what you can't do by trying, you can do by training. Phenomenal. And it's, yeah. and it's true. All these practices are, are training and training is repetitive. If you're going to train for a weightlifting competition or you're going to train or on a marathon, or you're going it, to, it's all repetition. Mm-hmm. And in a culture, I think that really prizes novelty. I think we have to rediscover the value of repetition and yeah. habit. Yeah. Well, um, we, you use the word spontaneity and spontaneity carries a romantic, uh, illusion. Uh, right. Every good thing in your life today has come through planning. Uh, if you go. think about it, I mean, we we have happenstances that come along. You go, wow, that's amazing. But your wedding, your 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 honeymoon, your marriage, your parenting, all comes through planning and repetition. Uh, it's why every parent says, "How many times do I have to tell so you?" So true. So true. You know? So I love I love that. Um, we are, uh, we're talking about your book, uh, Entering <laughs> Jesus, and I really love uh, the things. I can't wait to read it. Um, you said that there were uh, two other th- parts of this. We've gone over our hour time frame, and I want to uh, respect your time as well. Um, but as this comes closer, can we do this again in August? Uh, I'd love to. I just so appreciate the way you think. Uh, and the way you see life. Um, uh, and so one of the questions that I always ask, uh, I grew up in the little Baptist church that spiritual formation was that wacky stuff that yeah. <laughs> uh, came, in, came in because Pentecostals did it and such. And it really is actually not like that at all. Um, and then when I remember uh, reading Richard Foster and having somebody in yes. my church go, oh, you better be careful. He's a, he's a mystic. And I'm like, I don't think he really is, but okay. Um, but here's the question I have on on, on spiritual formation. Um, that's exactly what the fruit of the Spirit is. It is the Spirit forming the life of Christ in us. Right. Um, and um, there is a. How do you take? And this is this. Will your will centering Jesus help me if I'm a blue collar guy? 
who uh, I get up at 4.30 in the morning to go to work. I run lines, I run fences, I pull uh, a truck, a trailer. I do all these things. By the time I get home, my hands hurt. I can't even put them in my pockets. They're banged up. Um, when, when we talk about this, uh, how do we encourage that person? How centering Jesus going to take that person and say, it's worth the time. And the little bit of effort accumulates over time where Jesus is centered. How do we, how do we encourage that person, uh, through your book and just through a friendship with Jesus? Well, I think it, I think centering Jesus would be a book that a blue collar guy could pick up. Maybe he gets the audio book and he's listening, listening to the audio book in the truck back and forth to work. I think it, I think it would be valuable for a person to do that because ultimately it's leading them to the savior of the world. Mm. And if I thought there was a better savior, I'd go after a better. And when I say savior, I don't mean just, Oh, we need someone to take us to heaven when we die. No, we need a savior who can rescue us now, who can save us now. Hosanna save now. Right. Right. We, we need that now. And so a blue collar guy reading centering Jesus will be drawn, I believe, uh, closer and deeper to Jesus, who is the savior of the world. Mm. And I believe that as people surrender their lives to Jesus, pledge their allegiance to Jesus and begin to live the Jesus way, they discover real fulfilling satisfaction in all that they're doing. And of course, it's a book that doesn't answer every problem a person is going to encounter, but it leads them to, well, our shepherd, our good shepherd, King Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's going to make things right. Yeah, I know. That is so great. I am so glad you came today. I'm encouraged personally. I want to encourage people, pre-order the book. Don't don't forget about it. Get on there now. We're going to have all the links uh, in the show notes. Uh, and you'll be able to uh, pre-order it, get there, and make it happen. Um, uh, the the thought that I want to conclude with, and just uh, um, besides just gratitude to you, Derek, for uh, taking time out of your busy life um, uh, to encourage me, but also encourage those who listen, is um, Jesus is spectacular. You have uh, you have communicated that so well. Um, and what I love about the way you're thinking and is you're talking about moving that into my eye view, uh, yeah. you know, put them right there in the center. You know, I'm a hunter and put them in the crosshairs there so you, you can not cause you're going to shoot him, but so you can see clearly what you're looking at. Um, and I, and I just talking with some of my friends and I said, what would change in your life if you believe that Jesus was the solution to everything. Uh, and would you, and would you approach things going, Oh man, that guy's a mess. Or would you approach things going, man, I got the answer. I can't yeah. wait to introduce you to this Jesus. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like your description is going to give me that kind of encouragement to see Jesus that way. Uh, when I read centering Jesus, um, uh, and that's what I'm looking forward to. And I, I appreciate that that's how you live. And I appreciate that that's how you think. Uh, and I appreciate that you love Jesus and the church enough to lead us there. So thank you, my friend. 
Um, let's come back and do this again. Uh, uh, I'll, I've got to take a trip out of the country and uh, I know this is all timed and everything when it drops, but when they hear <laughs> this, I will have just returned to the United States. Um, but once I've done that, um, let's, uh, let's schedule something else and uh, we'll, we'll drop it right on the release day. And let's do it. I uh, mean, I so appreciate you brother and uh, uh, go Raiders, go Warriors and the A's are already <laughs> gone. <laughs> so anything else you want to say to our, our, our listeners today before we say No, that? I just want to say thanks so much for another uh dialogue. I always appreciate our conversations. And uh yeah, let's get uh back together in the books out and and talk again about Jesus. I'm always happy to do that. I mean, for me, uh everything good in my life, um, I can attribute to the work of Jesus in my life. And yeah. I'm grateful. And so I want to help others um experience what I've experienced. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk again. All right, man. I, and I, I want to say, when you say that, I believe you, uh, I believe you so that I appreciate that. So thanks, thanks again. And for those of you who are uh, listening, thanks for tuning in. Uh, don't forget to uh, follow us, like us and share us. Uh, 